Welcome to the Chaya Podcast, a sacred platform where Jewish Iranian changemakers turn taboo topics into transformational opportunities for the community. I'm your hostess, Nicole Napovar, a licensed psychotherapist with a private practice in Century City. And I'm also the co-founder of Chaya, a community of intimate gatherings for Jewish Iranians to experience meaningful connection and deepen their sense of self. Chaya invites you to exercise four core intentions when attending or tuning into our vibes. Compassion, courage, open-mindedness, and growth. But Chaya is not just for Persian Jews. It's a platform for any listener who comes from a collectivistic background. What do we mean by collectivistic? Well, if you grew up valuing the family or community over yourself, guess what? You grew up in a collectivistic culture. The intention of this podcast is to support our listeners by challenging the rules our parents and community taught us to buy into for the best life. Instead, let's decide from a more conscious place in our souls which practices we want to keep, which ones we want to let go of, and how we can own those decisions with grace so that we can thrive in more fulfilling and authentic lives. This is the Chaya Podcast, and I'm your hostess, Nicole Napovar. Welcome, Chaya fam. I am so excited today to have Tabby Raphael. She is a Los Angeles-based writer and activist born in Iran after the revolution. She and her family were granted refugee asylum in the U.S. when Tabby was seven years old. She formerly served as the executive director and co-founder of 30 Years After, as well as a three-time director of the Maher Fellowship. She also served as Director of Academic Affairs at the Consulate General of Israel in LA. Tabby is a weekly columnist for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles and also contributes to LA Magazine. So I am so excited to have you here, Tabby. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nicole. I'm one of your biggest fans and I really applaud Chaya for its amazing work. Uh, it's tireless work and oftentimes it's very thankless work you know we we almost imagine Chaya has been around for decades and we you know we we attend the events and we participate without actually stopping to think what a milestone the organization has been for our community thank you thank you so much I know likewise as executive directors we have are wearing a lot of different hats and I've learned so much from you um, so thank you for your guidance and your advice all the time. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so excited. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm filled with useless advice anytime you want to. No. <laughs> um, I beg to differ. I mean, today we're going to be talking a lot about mental health in the Jewish Iranian community. And I would love to just dive in with, you know, my first question for you. I know you wrote an article back in 2018 for the Jewish Journal called Silent Pain, Depression Within the Persian Community. And it went completely viral. It was the talk of the town. Everybody that week at Shabbat was talking about this article, I <laughs> imagine. And um, I was just curious to know what inspired you to write this article. And can you tell us more about why you think depression is such a silent topic in our community? Thank you for that, and, and thank you for, for remembering that article, because it's been a few years now, so that cover story since it came out. I want to first tell your listeners that, you know, I am not uh, a psychologist, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a mental health expert. My background is in 
nonprofit relations, specifically Jewish and pro-Israel uh, pro nonprofit, and public diplomacy. But within that sense, I think life has set me up with a lot of observations and with a lot of um, lessons. Some of them learned very painfully, others learned more peacefully about the joys and the demons of our community. You know, I, I was born in Iran, as uh, you and, you know, your intro said, and um, I came to this country when I was seven and we started all over. We were refugees and we joined a community of tens and of thousands of Persian Jewish refugees in Southern California. And it, it was, as it still is, a very insulated community. So I really got to see what Persian Jews are like here. And my family, especially my parents, are really, really Persian. They're really traditional, um, however you, you know, want to define that. And, um, and so I really had this dual nature growing up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember I was doing an interview with the LA Times for a story last year. And when the story came to print, the author of it referred to me as a, almost like an expert or like a, an analyst of the Persian Jewish community. And I'd never thought of myself until, uh, as that until I actually saw it written by a non-Persian in print because I realized to her, I was answering so many questions about you know, who we are, what drives our values, how beautiful we can be, and also um, the challenges we can create for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I just want you know, listeners to know that I'm not a mental health expert, but when it comes to uh, the Persian community, I think I might have a couple of PhDs. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think you really do have such a gift for articulating and putting words to things that we're all experiencing, but we don't really know how to express. So don't, we, you don't know how you don't know how to express it, not because you don't have the words. Our community doesn't know how to express its pain because it doesn't have the permission. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And I'm not here to pounce upon upon our community. I adore us. Um, but I believe in quality of life. I believe if you gave up everything to escape a country like Iran, you need to damn well make sure that your quality of life in America, and I'm not talking about how many cars are parked in your wonderful driveway. I'm talking about quality of life, physical health, mental health, spiritual nourishment are the best that they can be given your resources and your attitude. In the December 28 issue of the Jewish Journal, it was called Silent Pain depression in the Persian community. Imagine, you know, we had been in, in the U.S. for over 30 years, our community, especially in L.A., and the first time you see a cover story on Persian Jews, and not really just that, but one that shorter, sort of shows our warts and our flaws, and I couldn't believe how much traction it got. Every other minute, I had a notification on social media that somebody else had shared it. And I thought, what is this that's causing this, this you know, unbelievable reaction? And I realized we're finally talking. Someone has finally opened up that door, cleared the room a little bit out of that stuffy air. And I tried to write that, by the way, from the perspective of a lot of respect for the community. Mm -hmm. I loathe those who... Uh, air out dirty laundry about themselves and, and, and their communities. That's not, a, um, that's not a compassionate way to do it, nor does it even work. 
I want to tell you, because most people don't know that what inspired that article. Um, this was a couple of years before the pandemic at a time when my mother was still able to come over and help, help me with our, with our children. We have very small children at home. They're four and two now. They were younger before, of course. And my mother came to our um, apartment one day to, to help me with the kids. And she said, Tabby, you'll never believe who I ran, ran to into the street. And I'm expecting her to say, you know, some Persian friend, of course. Okay, that's nice. You ran into Khanum so-and-so. How's her, you know, daughter? Is she in med school? And my mother says, I ran into, and I'm going to use like a, you know, pseudo name, you know, mm -hmm. let's say he has a very Persian name, but I'll say, you know, Daniel. She said, I ran into this boy, Daniel, and she mentioned his last name. And she said, Tabby, he was filthy and he was homeless. He was lying in the street. And I looked at him and I said, Daniel, is that you? And he looked up and he said, oh, yes, hello, you know, Mrs. Torbati. That's, that's my mother's, you know, maiden name. Uh, yes, how are you? And she explained to me that we had been in Italy as refugees through Hyas, which most of the Iranian refugees in the late 70s and, uh, and 80s went through Hyas through Austria or Italy. If you don't know that history about your family, it's up to you to look it up now and see if Hyas or any other uh, organizations helped you. So we came out of Iran the same time. And in those months that we were in Italy, we were with this uh, other Persian Jewish family in the same neighborhood and in, in, in the same town um, where the Italian government had, had put its, ref, uh, you know, Persian Jewish refugees. It, our town was called La Dispoli. And decades later, here he was actually on the street high as a kite, because unfortunately, you know, he's an addict, um, filthy and lying there. And I want to tell you what a quintessentially un-Persian story is and what a quintessentially Persian story this is. It's such a quintessentially un-Persian story because I have to tell you, when you think of a young Persian man, especially a young Persian Jewish man, you do not think of a homeless person, okay? Mm -hmm. You also don't necessarily think of a someone who's going to be serving you at a fast food restaurant because the overachievement in our community, which is both a blessing and sometimes a mental, you know, wellness curse, um, doesn't permit for things like that. Mm -hmm. The familial ties and the familial bonds and sometimes the familial nooses that our family wrap around us don't permit for people to be out on the street, right? Mm -hmm. The one thing that doesn't discriminate is addiction. Drug addiction can hit, you know, anyone from any cultural background, um, especially Persian Jews, and we'll get back to this later, because of the unique stresses our youth are under. But when you think of a, of a young Persian Jewish man, you don't think of someone homeless, okay? Now, there it is, a quintessentially un-Persian story. But how does the story become quintessentially Persian? When was the last time, Nicole, your mother saw a Persian man on the street, recognized him, and then used him by his first name and started asking him what he's doing there and how his family is doing, Right? No one stops and speaks to homeless people on the street like this because we don't know them. But here was my mother stopping this young guy in his late 20s and literally speaking to him as if she'd run into him at a synagogue. Daniel, is that you? What are you doing here? You understand? Mm -hmm. 
the way of identifying him, of communicating with him, and then the worry that she took on for him. She stood there for 20 minutes. She was mm-hmm. late in the street, you know, coming to babysit. And I didn't mind that. The humanity she toward, showed towards him of, let's find your mother. Let's talk to her. I, I, I believe he's been, he's not really allowed back home because of some abusive tendencies um, towards, towards, you know, his family. I, I can't really divulge more into that, nor do I know more than that. But um, the way that she just identified him as someone who's part of the community of, of you don't belong here on the P, you know, corner of Pico and Robertson passed out in front of a Walgreens. You belong at your family's table at a Shabbat dinner, right? With a kippah on your head and the latest statistics of the Lakers game on your phone. And when she told me about this young man, it really started a conversation in my mind about addiction. I hadn't thought about really depression and mental health yet. And, and the, the cover story was divided between, between um, addiction and, and, and depression. But here's what I realized, Nicole. This was the impetus for that whole story. You are born and raised your whole life, if you're this, this young man's parents in Iran, just like every ancestor you've had as a Persian Jew for 2,700 years, which is how long the community was there. After 2,700 years, a chain is broken. A violent Islamic anti-Semitic revolution begins. A war with Iraq begins that lasts eight years and costs a million lives and sends you out of your home country that you've been in for almost three millennia to America. And the sacrifices and the pain that you made, including even as a young child, as, as this, this boy was, having escaped Iran, having struggled as a refugee. Believe me, we were broke. Many of us still are here in LA, but we were, we were, we were nothing in Italy. We were in transit refugees. We had nothing. We were nothing as far as society was concerned then. The way many refugees are still treated, uh, you know, today in Europe and, and in the U.S. You come to the U.S., you grow up, and then in your teens, you get mixed up with, with, with the wrong people. And I don't mean to take that responsibility off the individual. You know, some of it is, is, is a result of bad friends. Some of it is a result of you choosing to be with bad friends. And some of it is a result of lack of parental in, intervention. Why? Because they're refugees with bigger fish to fry than worrying about who their kids are hanging out with. Or maybe because they feel they can't control their kids enough. Right? Because in America, if you're a Persian Jewish refugee or immigrant, your child is in charge. We all know that. I was in charge. I bet you were in charge. I was certainly in charge of any multimedia we had that my sister and I had to set up because my parents couldn't read the instruction manual, right? When we first came to this country. So it's also, you, I think you, it's also yeah. lack of education. I think it's lack of understanding and being exposed to healthy ways of coping with difficult things. I think it's cultural um, and how our culture, you know, teaches us to deal with our emotions and, or hide our emotions or cope with our emotions. So I think there's also some cultural influence. There is that, of course. There, there's a lot of those aspects. But look, you already, before you're even 10 years old, the way I was or the way this young man was, before he and I were 10 years old, we were, sur- we were survivors of a war, okay? Because Iraq was bombing the hell out of us. Especially, you know, I'm a child survivor of the Iran-Iraq war. We were survivors of an Islamic revolution. We were refugees all before the age of 10, 
right? We were pulled out of school, out of our friends, out of our native tongue and brought to, a, to you know, this glorious country, America, but where, let's face it, assimilation was painful at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we came here and you think all of that, all of that loss, all of that pain and trauma, real PTSD tra- trauma, and then you get mixed up with a wrong crowd here. You become an addict. You stay an addict for decades, and then you end up on the street because of addictive behavior, because of abusive behavior. And all of these ideas were going through my mind as I was writing this cover story. And it took months to put together and to get it the way I wanted it to. Because I have to tell you, everybody thinks that when you move to America, you're a success. And it depends what you're comparing it to. You're a success because you're not in Iran anymore. That's damn well sure, (laughs) right? But if you've ended up on the streets here, we need to examine why and how that you know, happened as an individual level, as a community level. And I wrote in June 2019, um, another cover story for the journal called Lost in Translation. And that story was all about how we know what we've gained in America. We speak about it incessantly, but we never talked about what we lost. Mm -hmm. We never talk about what our community lost when we left Iran. And some of the things that we lost are directly causing um, the loneliness, the struggles, and some of the challenges that, that we have today. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, it's so true. I think we're always talking about what we gained, and as humans, even we focus on what we have, but it's very hard to accept and look at the things that we've lost. I think that's really beautiful. My next question for you are, what are some themes that you've noticed in our community when it comes to mental health? Because yes, I think, you know, what a story that your mom had ran into someone on the street who was dealing with addiction and who was homeless. But I think on a more um, day-to-day level, and I think just when you think about sort of the typical Jewish Iranian, there's a lot of mental health stuff going on there that isn't being addressed. And I'm curious to know, you know, right. why you think that is, why, why do these stigmas exist? And, you know, what is it, what does it look like? I want you to imagine, and I'm sure we all do, that you have a couple of close Ashkenazi friends, okay? Mm-hmm. And you have, um, you have an Ashkenazi best friend whose older brother you find out is depressed, okay? Mm-hmm. Has been dealing with some depression, also has been late, late, let's say from the pandemic, struggling with panic attacks, weekly or daily panic attacks and so on, you know. And you speak to your friend about how she's doing, you know, about it, how her brother is doing. Obviously, you hug her, you know, her brother when you see him, you give him some support, you know, whatever you do. Um, your best friend meets an amazing guy, this, this Ashkenazi girl who happens to be one of your best friends and gets married. And, you know, and then during her engagement, you, you make lachayims. Let's say this is pre-pandemic or post-pandemic, God willing, you know. Mm-hmm. She met an amazing guy and she was, you know, she's having an engagement party. Do you think that at that engagement party for your Ashkenazi friends, either her parent or the groom's parents are biting their nails and staring strangely at the brother who's been st- struggling with depression for the last year? Or do you think they're off in the corner 
enjoying, you know, their kosher-ish catering and dancing and taking selfies, right? And this is why I bring up this example. I don't mean to say, I don't mean to reduce things to one community or to another or to say that Ashkenazim don't think about, you know, mental health or so on. Mm -hmm. But this is what I am telling you. In the Persian Jewish community, if you even have a family member who is outed, okay, outed as struggling with mental health, an older brother who's been having depression, who had to drop out of law school because of depression or panic attacks or stress and depression that had eventually led to some kind of substance abuse. I want to make it clear that someone else's painful mental health struggles in the Persian Jewish community become your liability. Okay? So if you happen to be that person's sister, this is going to affect your chances, let's say, quote unquote, chances or, or your accessibility to meeting the kind of partner that, let's say, you've defined in your head as you want to meet a nice Jewish Persian guy from a good family, right? Mm -hmm. And tell me in what Ashkenazi family. We'll keep it even in the Jewish community. We won't even go into the non-Jewish community. Tell me in what Ashkenazi family would cause an act, would actually have an intervention with their daughter and like an actual to-do over, let's say, marrying somebody whose brother suffered from depression mm -hmm. or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, listen, I can't, I can't completely punish our community for that. As we say in, in uh, let me translate it to you, to you, um, from Persian to English, uh, my parents will always say, Tabi, we didn't grow a bunch of radishes in our backyard, right? Which means is literally a Persian parent's way of saying, what do you think you are? Some kind of like root vegetable we planted outside? You're our child. You're our child. And we didn't raise you to X, Y, and Z, right? Now that X, Y, and Z is a very gray area. They could say we didn't raise you to you know, uh, drop out of high school. Or they could say, that's one thing, Hagdaran, as we would say, they would be deservedly, you know, right in saying that. There's, that's where the dangerous gray area. They could also say, we didn't deserve you to abandon us. We didn't, uh, you know, raise you to abandon us and go to school mm -hmm. in Boston. Why can't you go here to SMC? Mm -hmm. or, we, or we didn't raise you to fill in the blank that that's kind of where the where, where a bad gray area can be mm -hmm. but in general you can't blame persian parents if for their hyper overprotective you know they're, they're overprotective you can't blame them listen now that i have my children if my child children growing up god willing marry somebody who has something with mental health struggles in the family you want to know about it you want to know it's on its radar what you have to be careful to do is not let it become a liability for your own child's future or their happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something that we're working on. We're, oh, the Persian Jewish community is a working progress. If we want progress, we have to know when to forgive ourselves without still letting go of what we want to make progress on. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You cannot sit 500 Persian parents down in an auditorium and tell them, stop being so judgmental. You need to change. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. 
I don't believe in I don't believe in shaming people and this is why I with the background that I did my own intro with Nicole I need people to understand I come from such a traditional Persian family mm-hmm. where my parents would have truly freaked out if I had you know and I don't say this in a pejorative way that I know they would have freaked out if I had married you know somebody where there was something in the family that they were concerned about yeah, and I think this isn't just about mental health. I think this is also about physical health. This is about genetics. This is about like this thing about, you know, who you're, the family that you're marrying into. We have to look at X, Y, and Z and make sure right. there's no, you know, quote unquote dirt on this family. Um, and listen, and, and it's impossible because there, 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 you know, always will be something. You have to deal with Persian parents as a Persian child without shaming them you have to have a lot of love and you have to identify the love you have for them every conversation you should have with your persian parent and and maybe we're skipping questions here if you want them if you want them to either um understand something that's causing you pain or if you just want them to get off your back every conversation needs to start with i know you're doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying because of your indescribable love for me I knew, I cognitively knew, as we all know, hopefully, that our parents love us, but I didn't get it. I didn't internalize it until I was holding Baruch Hashem, my own children in my hands. Mm-hmm. And, you, and I felt the sense of, my God, I will do anything to protect you from even a bully on the playground. Mm-hmm. Now imagine a parent who thinks, I will protect you from everything that scares me about America. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Our community is not individualistic like the way Americans are. We are very, very much communal. We are very, very much intertwined sometimes to not such a good degree so that somebody who has a depressed brother suffers a liability pursuing their own course in their life from the community. Imagine how much, how already, how worried you already would be wanting to help heal your brother, make sure he has a good life ahead of him. But on top of that, now suddenly guys won't date you. My mother had a, had one major criterion when it came to who I married. And that was, do you know what it was? No, I, I don't. Want you to, I want you to guess. I want you to guess. It was related. I want, it was related to looks. What do you think it was? <sighs> I want to say either he has hair on his head or he doesn't have a big belly. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I thought you were going to say, oh, he's tall or something. I want, you and your listen- I want you and your listeners to know that my mother had a very big investment in whether I dated somebody who had a familiar history of male pattern baldness. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't know where it came from because all of my uncles, my maternal uncles, happened to be bald. But... <laughs> Maybe she didn't, maybe she wanted to stop that pattern. I don't know. My, my, my paternal, uh, uh, you know, uncles, my amus, including my dad has a fabulous, fabulous heads of hair. I don't know what it was, but baldness was definitely an issue. And uh, I just remember a lot of conversations. I didn't know if she was kidding or not. I, I, I love my mother where she would literally be like, I'm going to switch to Persian now for you, for you guys. Okay. She would literally be like, which is Persian. Now, forgiveness to all of the 
receding hairline listeners that you have, I, I, I love Baldwin. I, I think they, I, they bring so much personality to the table, so much personality. So, I, I, but, I, but I am saying every family has their own thing. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that our parents want the best for us and their definition of what is best for us has been around for thousands of years and it's it's like based in Iran and now we're in America and we're learning I think that diversity is okay and differences are okay and it's okay to not conform to what it is that our parents wanted for us. I think we all want what's best for us but the how to is very different. It can be very different and it can be very similar. It's just I hope for our listeners that if they are, you know, decide, I think the most important thing is that they choose intentionally what it is that they want, consciously what it is that they want, instead of giving into, you know, this is a liability, or that is a liability, or this is not good, or that's not good, you know, explore why, get curious, and ask yourself if you really agree or not, because you have choice. Right, but you know, listen, it, it's both the the how to get there, and both the outcome, if you want to, you know, if if you want your children to be happy, which by the way, isn't the number one thing you should want for your children. Mm-hmm. Mine, that's not my number one thing. I don't, that, my number one thing is not, I want my children to be happy. My, mm-hmm. number, my number one thing is I actually want my children to be resilient. Because mm-hmm. if you can learn to be resilient, you can access happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to tell you, the answer to you know, maybe not going your parents' direction is not outright going in the steadfast, opposite, immature, completely rebellious direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not an answer to anything either. You, yeah, 100%. Your, what you have to understand is your parents' desires for you doesn't have to be mutually exclusive with part of what you want for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So if your, par- if, if, if your parents it's very important for you to them that you marry, you know, someone Jewish that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive to you. You can marry someone Jewish and, but he doesn't have to be Persian, right? He, that, that, that's where you, you maybe find that middle. My parents really did want me to marry a, a Persian Jew and against all odds, I actually did. And people had bets going on that. Nobody could believe <laughs> I ended up marrying a Persian guy. Nobody, least of all me, nobody. People want, no, people lost money off of my marriage because no, no, I'd never even I'd never dated a Persian guy before I met my husband okay um, and it wasn't because I didn't like them if your readers have heard from me in the last 40 minutes that I might drop a couple of hints as though why the typical Persian guy maybe may not have been so interested in me um, you know I I like to talk um, and I and I like to talk and I like to talk a lot more than uh, than about what uh, what car you're driving or you know how how like the Lakers did this season, which is never good. Um, you know they haven't had a good season for me for years. But um, <laughs> if your parents turn you to tell you to turn left, going right until you end up in Minnesota is not a direction that you need to necessarily Mm -hmm. be pursuing either, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. And you said your response to everything I said, Nicole, was that our parents are are basing what they think is best for us based on thousands of years of Persian Jewish tradition. That's Mm -hmm. true, but let me tell you something. It's more than that. Our parents know they're in America now. There's 8 
mother or father, unless they literally arrived from Iran, which isn't happening, you know, right now, thinking that, that uh, things are going to be the same way they were in Iran. They haven't thought that for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the reasons why they'll try to enforce a lot of their own um, beliefs and, and life courses on us is because they have lived lives and they have had a lot of experiences especially in marriage in raising children in careers Mm -hmm. in just Mm -hmm. general human to human relations Mm -hmm. and the older i get the actually older i i can admire and respect a lot of that when Mm -hmm. i'm in my 30s now when i was in my 20s i rejected everything my parents uh told me about you know uh, some of the little that they knew because they didn't know much they were more more like hostigari you know but well, when they were married but some of the things that they would tell me about like male female relationships i most of it i dismissed because mm-hmm. i thought what do you know you know you're from iran but now that i'm in my 30s and i'm and i'm married and start and have our family i start understanding that some of my my parents um I, I, I've made the transition now that I'm an adult between um, my parents telling me what to do and understanding that and to a certain wisdom that mm-hmm. in their own unique way, yeah. male pattern baldness aside, they were trying to, you know, they were trying to impart on me. Who else, who else are your parents going to, you know, pass their values onto the dog. Who are they going to pass their values? Yeah, there is wisdom behind what, you know, what they're saying. I think even with mental health, when you marry someone, your partner's mental health becomes your mental health. Yes. Vice versa. So whatever they're dealing with, you're going to have a relationship with that in your relationship. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't marry someone who has mental health stuff. I think everybody has mental health stuff. Everybody I, I, I've, I've yet met to somebody, meet to somebody, <laughs> I've yet to meet somebody without them. Exactly. So I think the question just becomes more about, so how are we, you know, how do we navigate these conversations? How do we navigate anxiety and depression and bipolar and trauma and all of these different things as, as right. couples, as friends, as families? And that right. kind of takes me to my next question with you, which is, some of us have moved out of our parents' home. Some of us are living with our parents and our siblings. And, you know, so with what's going on right now, how can parents be there for their children when it comes to depression and anxiety, especially during COVID? What are some, like, maybe a couple tips or skills that you think or recommend or, I mean, from your heart that you think would be advantageous for I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. Thank you. I'll tell you something for both. Again, I'm not a therapist and I'm not a mental health expert, but I've lived with a lot of different kinds of people in my life. Um, I know people and I can tell you that if you're a young adult who's living with your parents and you know, I did for a few years uh, right after college, you know, when I was in my twenties and if you feel that one of your parents is really down or angry all the time or your parents are fighting or there's depression there, you know, whatever it is, which I certainly grew up with. My mom became really depressed after we left Iran and I don't blame her, but we didn't know to call it depression back then. This was like in the nineties. She didn't get treated for it. Um, It was never really identified as that. We never talked about her loneliness of leaving her, all her friends and, you know, a lot of her family behind in Iran and so on. What I did, which which I wish I hadn't, is I I completely took on her burdens. 
as a child and, and then as, a, as an adult. When I got my driver's license, I wasn't like my Ashkenazi friends, and I'll use the term Ashkenazi, but certainly a lot of the Persian ones too. I didn't pick up my friends and go driving on the PCH and scream like, woohoo, I have that freedom. I didn't do that. When I got my driver's license, I saw that car as a ticket to help my mom out of depression and to help my dad out of the boredom and loneliness he had in having to have a partner who was depressed. Meaning I used that car to, you know, pick up my parents and to take them places they wouldn't go themselves, like the beach or Third Street Promenade or, you know, day trips to Santa Barbara or San Diego, just in an effort for what we say in Persian as tafri. Tafri is like free time, fun time, leisure time. Right. And I still do. I, I, not that I can during the pandemic right now, we don't want to be, you know, too close to our parents because they're, you know, they're, they're old, they're older. This is something that, that I think Persian kids do a lot because the, the roles are so reversed, you know, between us and this country. I have to tell you when we came to America, my parents were parents in the physical sense of the word. They were the ones walking my sister and I to school and dressing us, but we were the parents in the emotional sense of the word. Do you know what I mean? We would, this was in the early 90s. My mom and my sister and I would get on a bus. She didn't have enough language proficiency and she'd never driven a car in Iran, so she didn't get her license for years. So we would take the, you know, LA buses with their, you know, ugly yellow and cream and, you know, orange stripes back in the early 90s. And my mom would be overwhelmed at the bus driver's instructions. She wouldn't understand what stops we needed to go on and get off of. Mm. And my sister and I were not only the translators, we were, we, we were the ones holding her hand and telling her things were going to be okay. And we would know the bus stop and, you know, we would, we would know what the bus driver was saying and, and not to be worried. And we would find our way if we were lost in the street. All things you would think the parents have to do right? But you take for granted that somebody who doesn't speak English and now has to raise a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old, you know, girls and the daughters in the U.S. would be, would have been struggling with. And then later on, you know, just intervening, I mean, back to school nights, back to school nights and open houses where my sister and I sitting and, you know, with our parents and our parents basically asking us, can you ask your teacher if you're getting A's and how you're doing? And our, our, our parents had to trust that we would translate, that we would tell them that we were actually getting the grades we were getting. Not that it mattered because my sister and I ahem, always got straight A's, um, you know, but like my Ashkenazi friends were, parents were checking off that report card one by one in terms of marks and grades and conduct. My mother would go, and, and you look, are you being good in school? Fine. You know, write my name. You know how to sign my name? Sign my name. You know, and I bring, I bring up all of this not as a tangent because I am telling you that Persian kids take on a lot of their parental burdens. We take on the, bur the most of all, we take on the burden of trying to make our parents happy in America. Why? Because we have access to things that can improve quality of life, including technology. This is why every young Persian person I know is the one who's buying their parents, you know, new tablets and phones and this and that and, you know, um, wristwatches to keep track of their, of their, you know, blood pressure and, you know, heart rate. The things that we younger people have access to in the U.S., 
taking them to like the good movies that have just come out or recommending to them which movies they should see, right? Which streaming things they should watch, whatever it is. They rely on us to help improve their quality of life because we have the cultural access to the good stuff. Do you know what I mean? To really the good stuff, even to the good restaurants, to the good this and that, to the vacation spots. And they rely on us for that sometimes instead of vice versa. And we take on their burdens, especially if we live with them. We can take on their loneliness. And this is what I want to say to young people in their 20s and 30s who are still living at home. Find a way to not isolate your parents. Turn towards them. Don't turn a cold shoulder to them. Shoulder to them. Show compassion to them without taking on their struggles. Give the, help them get access to everything from therapists to antidepressants to anything that they need but make sure that you are your own person with your own hobbies things that make you feel alive if you wake up to a depressed parent and go to sleep to a depressed parent get your butt out of your home during the day and into anything that will make you feel alive whether it's a yoga class at the park. I, I'm not kidding about this. Or treating yourself to an ice cream cone at the Big Chill or having a distant, you know, socially distant coffee or lunch or whatever the hell it is with your friend. Maintain the inner cleanliness, I would say, of your own room. The way that your room might look struck, starkly different from your, the rest of your parents' home. And by the way, your room is a metaphoric room for your mind and your body and your soul. I don't know anybody who lives with their parents. None of my friends who live with their parents or did when we were in our 20s, none of their rooms look like the parents' living room. You think I'm going to bring a bunch of plastic-covered furniture into my room with Greek statues and columns? That was my parents' living room. My own room, I tried, though I didn't succeed, to make it look a little bit of the way I wanted to make it. And this is what you need to do with your own life. Your own life is that metaphorical room that you have. When you step outside of that room, you're back in your parents' world. Your room is that life that you have created for yourself in a clean, pure way. And I don't mean there's no dust in it. I mean that if you already have parents who are overburdening you, mentally, physically, you don't need to surround yourself with friends who are doing the same. You don't need to be in a toxic relationship with a man or woman, a romantic partner who's doing the same to you. You don't need to be emotionally tormented at a job. If you can afford it to look for something else, which not everybody can, especially right now, keep your own damn room, meaning your own life, the way that you want it to. Keep it clean from toxins, the way that you would actually put an air purifier in your room to do the same mm -hmm. without pushing people like your parents out of your life. You can't avoid conflict in life. This, this is really what I've learned. You can't close the door, scroll your iPhone and pretend like those people are not living outside of that door with you. Part of growing up into a healthy human being is knowing you cannot close the doors completely on certain people in your life, but you can put up a little bit of a screen. You can put up a little bit of the screen that filters certain things in and out while keeping that door open. As you know, and as we've talked about today, the Jewish Iranian community has 
specific rules and ideas and ideals and formulas for what success looks like, for what happiness looks like. And they think that this is sort of like a one fits all formula and this is gonna work for everyone. And I think what you said so beautifully right now is that we all have different rooms. We all have different ways of expressing ourselves, of being in our power, of being in what makes us feel good. And so my curious question for you is, what's one rule that you've broken in the Jewish Iranian community? And what did you gain or learn from breaking that rule? If I was in my 20s and you had asked me this question, I would have told you I broke the rule by moving far away to go to college. Um, for the first two years anyways, I did. Uh, mm-hmm. but, if you, but I would have said, you know what, Nicole, though, I lost something in that too. Oh, believe me, I gained a lot. I, call, I used to call my mom from the dorm rooms at midnight and tell her I was about to go to sleep. I was on my way to a frat party. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't have known, mm-hmm. right? Mom, you're not listening, are you? No, that's impossible. <laughs> I, got, I, I didn't get you a smartphone. Um, <laughs> but what did I lose? I lost so much. I lost so much because for the first time in my life, nobody else knew any Persian Jews. And I was the only one. I was the only Persian Jew in the whole damn dorm building. Mm-hmm. I lost that identity overnight when I moved away. Mm-hmm. Right? I lost my Persian Shabbat dinners with my cousins yes. overnight. Now, it took me a couple of weeks and months to discover I could go do them at Hillel. But, like, I lost something, you know? So, I want to tell you, let me answer your question about kind of what's one rule I've broken. I think, I think I've eventually found a way to honor my parents' definition of success without losing my own joy. I know my parents would have really loved it if, if I had, you know, become a doctor. I know that. It's not to sound like a cliche. Every Persian parent who thinks their kid is smart tells them, you're going to make an amazing doctor, right? Look at the way you just diagnosed, diagnosed me over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, I found a way to honor their definition of success without losing my own joy. I'm not a doctor. I am a writer for the Jewish Journal. I have that column. I I write for Los Angeles Magazine when I have the time. I served at the Israeli um, consulate in in the public diplomacy sector. You know, I I was a founder and and co-founder, executive director for 30 years after. This all made them very proud they, they were proud to say this among their circle of friends and, and so on, even though they got it mostly wrong, you know, they, they wouldn't exactly know what 30 years after was. So they told people I worked at the Jewish Federation. All right, potato, potato. You know? <laughs> so how did you manage but, to do that without losing your joy? It was simple. I told them I wouldn't be happy as a doctor. I, I, I actually told them I, I would, be uh, of one very unhappy candidate for medical school. Mm. You know, they weren't necessarily pressuring me. I really was always terrible in maths and sciences anyways. I would have been, the, I would have been the worst doctor you've ever met. I think they got, here's what they got to see. Here's the secret. They got to see how much meaning the other jobs brought to me. They didn't necessarily see the happiness. Happiness isn't something that you can necessarily quantify even with a look on your face. I didn't come home and tell them, I am so happy working until 11 o'clock at night at night, every night for events for the Israeli consulate. No, but they saw the meaning in my eyes. They saw the meaning that it brought me. 
So I would come home and I would tell them about what I was doing leading 30 years after. They didn't understand half of it. And to be honest with you, they, my mom thought half the time I was arranging events for singles. Um, you know? Right. But she saw this look in my eyes when I talked about what I do and who I work with. She saw that meaning behind it. So if you are a 3L law student who suddenly had an epiphany that you actually want to drop out and go to USC film school instead, I'm not going to lie. Your parents might demand a reimbursement for the, you know, the, those three years of law school and they might have a grimace on their face, but just make sure you show them how much meaning your other endeavor is bringing to you. People can't necessarily see what makes you happy, but they can see what makes you feel fulfilled and brings meaning to your life. And one way, one rule that I did break that I will tell you 10 minutes after you asked me to answer your question, <laughs> is, um, I actually came public with uh, two things. I came public with um, the fact that I, I had completely undiagnosed but severe depression in high school. I came, uh, I came out with uh, the fact that I had postpartum depression after the first of our uh, birth of our first son. If your listeners are, are savvy, and they are, they'll know why I was able to come out with those two quote-unquote confessions. The first is that one happened 20 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, mm -hmm. when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of forgiveness for teenage angst, even though I didn't have teenage angst. I had actual clinical depression mm -hmm. <laughs> at, at Beverly, but they can chalk it up to teenage angst or the fact that it was, it happened, you know, so many years ago and the fact that, you know, it, it isn't happening now. There's a safety to be able to say that when you were a teenager, you had depression, right? Mm -hmm. Also, as there's a safety for me to be able to say that I had bad postpartum depression after the birth of our son. Why? Because my butt's already married. <laughs> and because my in, there ain't a damn thing my in-laws can do about it. Now their son already married me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had that, that, and because of that depression was well earned from postpartum depression after I gave my, my in-laws and my family a, grand, a, 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 a grandson. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You think if I was 25 years old, I would be telling you that I'd struggled with depression? Are you out of your mind? Maman didn't raise no fool, as we would say, right? I may have told you right now about everything for the last hour we need to change in my community. But uh, if I was 25 and single and, and you know, I, I, I wouldn't be necessarily admitting that to you on a podcast. I would tell you, I, I would tell you, I would tell you that over lunch. I would tell you that over coffee. Yeah, but what I think is interesting is that you said mama didn't raise no fool. No, no, no. I said, no, I said mama didn't raise no fool. <laughs> mama didn't raise no fool. But I think there is a lot of wisdom to saying and expressing who you truly are in obviously safe environments. And so I think my sort of wish and hope for our community is that if people are struggling with depression or anxiety, they're first and foremost getting the support that they need from safe and trusting, you know, family members and friends and getting professional help if they need it as well. That's the key. You know, let me tell you something. If, if, if I had been, you know, really depressed, let's say when I was 25 and, and a, 
a guy had met me and fallen in love with me, which let's face it, why wouldn't he have? I'm irresistible. Um, (laughs) He would have had every right to have wanted and to have known that this was being something that was being uh, under maintenance for me, meaning I had access to a therapist. I had access to antidepressants if that's what my you know, psychiatrists believed that that's, you know, what I needed. I had access to a support system that I was on the mend, that I was on the way up, right? Mm-hmm. Not sliding back down, down, down. And, and this is something that you should ask of the person that you're, let's say, romantically involved with or thinking of starting a future with. Mm-hmm. Um, all that I ask is that there's maintenance, right? I have, again, a, a gift from though of course he was worth it, you know, a gift from, from our firstborn. In my first pregnancy, I develop hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's disease. Mm-hmm. A lot of women get it in pregnancy. This is something I'll, um, my doctors have told me I'll have for life. Okay, so if you ask me to fill out a medical questionnaire, what el- health issues do you have? I have to say, I have hypothyroidism, okay? But that said, the second question is, is it being treated? Yes, it is being treated. I'm under, the, I'm under the care of endocrinologists at Cedar sinai and I take my Synthroid pill, which keeps my you know, thyroid levels at, at a good balance. So yes, it's being treated. So when somebody goes out there and says, I have depression, okay, the, more, the question I'm really interested in is, are you being treated, right? Because depression itself isn't some kind of death warrant. It's, and it shouldn't be a liability for your sister or your brother or whoever is still single in the family. Things like this are not some kind of primary indicator of our identity, mm-hmm. right? Nobody introduces, nobody introduces themselves at a dinner party. You know, yeah, this is my brother. What do you say? This is my brother. He's a lawyer. Not this is my brother. He has depression. We, we, can, we can go back to letting our jobs define us instead of our, our, our inner thoughts and our mental health struggles. They're not going to define us. What you need to do is get them under maintenance, whether it's anything like asthma, hypothyroidism. I happen to have asthma too, and, and it's, it's, again, it's being maintained. It's not rampant. It's not out on the loose, right? I take something for it every day. And that's not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that uh, everybody and their mother needs to be on antidepressants. I am just saying that you need to be taking care of anything that it is that is compromising your quality of life. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you to do that. And by the way, if you're living with traditional parents, and if that means you sneak out one hour a week to meet with a therapist because you think they may not be able to handle it or they would ask so many questions or make you feel bad about it that it would add another burden to everything that you're dealing with and that's what you do that's what you do mm-hmm. you know thank you so much thank you so so much for making the time and joining us and i am so excited for our listeners to hear this episode <laughs> it's been it's been a joy speaking with you um, I apologize to your listeners or ears. I must have burned through them for the last hour. Um, <laughs> if they want to get in touch with me, they can find me on Facebook. Um, just, you know, Tabby Raphael, R-E-F-A-E-L, and send me a message, um, you know, through there. 
uh, I have a website, tabbyrafael.com. They can, you know, catch up with my weekly columns in the Jewish Journal online or in print and keep this conversation going with me because maybe, just maybe, that's one of the reasons I was put here on this earth. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, Tabby. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Nicole. Have a peaceful, healthy week.